Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Sink or Swim. I am Lexi. And I'm Summer. And today we're going to be talking a little bit about OBGYN throughout history and women's health throughout history. Yeah, some of the big topics we're going to cover today are Henrietta Lacks, oppression throughout OBGYN history, Roe versus Wade, the history of it, and then as well as surgical um, or common popular surgical OBGYN surgeries during history. And just a little disclaimer before we start. Um, so we'd like to acknowledge that our perspectives are coming from a point of fourth year medical students who are interested in learning about more about history, um, how it's affected medicine, and how it continues to affect medicine. We are in no way experts on the topic and also acknowledge that we might be missing parts of the narratives or important people throughout history. We will do our best to provide interesting details and unique historical perspectives that other med students might find interesting. Great. Should we get into it? Let's do it. So the first topic we're going to be going through today is hysteria, the very antiquated term that describes a multitude of different female ailments, including, but definitely not limited to fevers, anxiety, nervousness, pelvic pain, erotic fantasies, and even things like fainting. Interesting. So it was an all-encompassing term, which seemingly is things that we just didn't know what they were, how to describe them in any better way. But let's get into it and what it looked like throughout history and how it affected things. So let's talk about hysteria throughout the ages. The first description we have of hysteria actually dates back to ancient Egypt at about 1900 BC, so a long, long time ago. Uh, The first records we have on this were written on papyrus, and they talk about spontaneous movements of the uterus within the female body. Ooh. So the thinkings were that if the uterus would wander or move to different parts of the body, you might see different symptoms. So if the uterus floats towards the head, you might see things like anxiety and depression. And if it moves lower towards the pelvis, you might see things like erotic fantasies. Interesting. So your (laughs) uterus can just swim throughout your body? That was the theory. It was called the wandering uterus theory, which was coined in 1600 BC. So for example, if the uterus floated towards the head, the patient could be treated by placing herbs into the nostrils which were thought to force the uterus to go back down towards the pelvis. Interesting. So you were treated from the head down, if that was the the theory, um, in Egypt anyway. And then alternatively, if the uterus had fallen too low into the pelvis, uh, herbs could be placed near the vaginal entrance in order to drive the misplaced uterus back up towards the head. What kind of herbs do we know? I don't know. That'd be interesting. I'd like to know <laughs> what herbs they are before I start putting something down there. That would be good to know. And then, you know, interestingly, Egypt wasn't the only place where hysteria was a very commonly used term. Uh, In Greece and then also Rome, it was used very widely as well. And in fact, in in Greek, the word for uterus is hist, which is where the term hysterectomy came from. Oh, interesting. And then we move on towards the Middle Ages, where hysteria, again, was used pretty commonly and um, pretty widespread. We have still Hippocrates and Galen continuing to use this term. And then we move into an interesting part of history. A female physician whose name is Trota de Ruggiero. I'm sure I'm butchering that name, so I'm so sorry. In the 11th century AD, uh, she is considered the first female doctor in all of Christian Europe. So she was born around 1090 AD and was a student at one of the first medical schools in the Western world. So she was one of the first gynecologists that we know of on record, and she's responsible for a couple of really important uh, works in women's health and advocating for women's health care. She also commented on the nature of hysteria, interestingly, and a direct quote from one of her works is her describing hysteria as, quote, the retaining of blood or of corrupt and venomous uterine humors that should be purged in the same way that men are purged of seed, end quote. Oh, so is this... Like she thinks women should be ejaculating. Yeah, that was <laughs> that was her perspective on it. And I actually think that was one of the first times that they talked about that in particular and were more explicit about what they thought it was and what the treatment was. Interesting. And so then we move on a little bit later into history. Let's go to the, his, uh, the Victorian era. So in the Victorian era, histor- hysteria was actually the second most common diagnosis in women after fevers. 
So a huge diagnosis at that time, probably because it was all-encompassing. So what do we think hysteria actually was? Do we think it was a lot of different afflictions, like, you know, like seizure disorders or like, what do we like now in this day? Like if we were to speculate, what do we think all of these things that were labeled as hysteria really were? So from my research, it seems like it was just this really broad term that described any affliction in women that we didn't know how to properly diagnose or treat yet. Okay. So anything from psychiatric conditions to physical conditions, um, you know, the gamut of pelvic pain that we now are still working on trying to figure out. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, things like fainting were involved too. Okay, so it's like today's of unclear etiology. Exactly. Okay. (laughs) I wonder if they're going to make a podcast about that term in 20 years. (laughs) But um, so anyway, back to the Victorian era. Uh, People that were not married were termed to be wandering around ubiquitously, which is a term that I found pretty frequently without uh, throughout my research. And this is when we had some new treatments uh, arise as well. So the treatment for hysteria in the Victorian era was sex, marriage, pelvic massage, and this was actually the advent of medical vibrators as well. And by the 1920s, Freudian psychoanalytic theory attributed hysterical symptoms to the unconscious mind's ability and attempt to protect the patient from psychic stress. So Freud was actually the first one to move away from hysteria and actually talk about it from a more uh, psychoanalytic perspective. Okay, so he was kind of the one saying that maybe it's not the uterus floating up to the head. It's more so there's something going on in people's minds or their conscious. Exactly. So he was the first one to kind of get away from the wandering uterus theory. Okay. And then we move into more modern day. Um, So let's talk about the DSM. The first DSM or Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, um, was published in 1952 and did not include hysteria at the time as a mental health condition. But then we fast forward to 1968 with the DSM-2 and it did appear there. So we kind of moved away from hysteria for a little bit in the 1950s and then we revisited it again in the um, in the turn of the 60s. Then in 1980, once again, the term was removed with the DSM-3 and it has not uh, resurfaced since then. So, I mean, overall, time and time again, researchers have pointed to the use of evidence that history was no more than a way to uh, describe everything that men found mysterious or unmanageable in women as, quote, hysteria. And, you know, I think it's important that we talk about this and we talk about how it was used to classify all of these things in women because a lot of it was used to reinforce harmful stereotypes about sex and gender. And it's important that we talk about it realize what it was used for and how it was used to um you know kind of steer women towards the direction that was uh, wanted and favorable by society at the time so I have a question so I've heard and I don't know if you came across this in your research but the word hysterical I've heard I don't know if this is true I've never really looked into sources for this but I've heard the word hysterical is kind of like derogatory based on the Greek word of hist. Did you come up with anything like that or what did you find? Yeah, I actually did see that, that the term uh, hysterical as we use it today does come from hysteria, which comes from the Greek hist. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. The more you know. The more you know. I think I'll be using that word differently now. Me too. I don't feel right using that anymore. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, that was interesting. That was a good one to start off with. Um, Our next topic, unless you have anything else to add. No. Okay. Um, Our next topic is going to be Henrietta Lacks. So I'm sure we're all relatively familiar or have heard of her name in some way, shape, or form. I know I went to University of Florida for undergrad, and one of the required classes that you had to take your freshman year, um, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks by Rebecca Sklute was actually a required reading. Interesting. Yeah. So I've actually, I read that book in undergrad and I'm sure a lot of, you know, UF's a huge school. I'm sure a lot of our classmates probably read it too. Um, But I thought it was kind of cool or important to revisit her story and just kind of talk about a little bit more, even though we've all kind of heard of it, I think we could use a little bit of a refresher. Um, So just kind of a quick summary of 
kind of what her story was. So in 1951, Henrietta Lacks discovers that she has something on her cervix. Um, She describes it as a knot, and that ends up being cervical cancer. At this time, the head of gynecology at Johns Hopkins, um, who is studying cervical cancer, asked um, the head of tissue culture, George Gay, to develop cultures of both healthy and cancerous surgical cell tissue. So Gay goes on and he gets the tissues from all cancerous patients, including Henrietta Lacks. At this time, um, no cell lines are really lasting long in labs, but for some reason, Henrietta's did. Um, And so these, because they survived for such a long time, because they were anomaly, Gay goes on to need them HeLa cells. Um, At the same time, Henrietta is receiving treatment for, um, for her cervical cancer, but ultimately she succumbs to her... Um, to her cancer, passes away, but she is survived by her husband and five of her children. Um, one of her children is Deborah, who um, is kind of talked about a lot in um, Rebecca Sklut's book. But so um, the kind of the, where this issue kind of starts to take place or the the like uh, the uh, problem in the story is that Lax and her family really had no idea that the doctor had taken cells or that some of her cells were still alive and being used for research purposes. Um, which, Lexi, I think you had an interesting tidbit on that, because we, I guess my question was that I couldn't remember from undergrad is, did she, did she give consent for the use of her cells? So the answer here is definitely no. Um, the doctor who talked about, Dr. Gay, when he took the tissue... Um, he definitely took it without the consent and without informing Henrietta Lacks what he was going to be doing with it. So at the time, the argument was that the doctors had received all consents and forms that they needed signed before the procedure happened. But the issue is that they didn't explain what the entirety of the procedure was, that they would be using her cells for research, and also that the procedure would cause infertility. So... You know, she got some form of consent, but it was definitely not informed by any means. And that's huge. I think that's um, something that's really stressed to us as medical students. It's something that I think we even had to learn for step two. I remember it being in some practice questions of what exactly is involved in getting consent. Um, So I think think that's kind of maybe some of the reason that that's really focused on in med students today. Absolutely. And, you know, I think one of the things with this story we focus on is the fact that her cells were used for research. And that's one of the main reasons the informed consent wasn't there. But losing your fertility without knowing, that is huge. Yeah. And heartbreaking. That is huge. So then what ended up happening with all of this? Yeah, so then um, flash forward to 1973, um, the family has a family friend who is a researcher and he kind of relays this information to him that he did some work on HeLa cells and the family kind of learned that, learned about these cells and learned they kind of thought that like, oh, like a part of Henrietta is still alive. Um, and so this was kind of eye-opening for them to say the least um, because they didn't know that this had been happening and that it had been so widespread. Um, and so it wasn't until the seventies that they found out. That's right. Mm-hmm. So wow. it's 1950 or yeah, 1951 that she was diagnosed with cervical cancer, but it was the seventies that they kind of, the family really kind of caught on to what was happening. Um, because, you know, her cells survived. They'd been allowed by scientists to conduct research on disease and genetics, um, develop new medical treatments and vaccines. Um, and so, originally I believe it was Gay who sold or he didn't even sell them he gave away the samples of the HeLa cells at no charge Um, but then over time there became a for-profit culture lab that sprung out and was mass producing these HeLa cells and other cell lines um, to supply them to research labs and so there was you know some profit off of the her HeLa cells and the family didn't know about this and wasn't receiving any of that profit or the benefit of herself. So I think that was also, um, you know, unfair. And I think the family acknowledges that as well. So the family kind of was distraught to learn that people were profiting off of Henrietta's cells. And to them, it felt reminiscent of kind of this history of white doctors in the U.S. conducting unethical research on black patients. 
And um, then in 1996, there was a BBC documentary. Um, and this documentary kind of explored more of Henrietta's life, but also attracted some negative attention. It brought on journalists. It also brought on lawyers that were in kind of some ways acting as con men. Um, there was one lawyer that promised Henrietta's family that he was going to help sue the John Hopkins Hospital, but he ended up kind of swindling them out of their own money. Um, and so because of that, the family was kind of turned off to all these journalists and people reaching out to them, trying to, you know, claiming that they're there to help them when really they may not be, or their help may be unprecedented and kind of leading to other poor outcomes. So can you imagine after all of this and after mm-hmm. learning that your mom cells have been propagating in a lab, mm-hmm. being profited off of, you finally think someone's going to help you and then they also swindle you? I know. I know. It's really sad and unfortunate and unfortunate that there's so many people out there willing to do that. Yeah. Um, but so then Rebecca Skloot comes in and she's, this is the author of the book that I read in undergrad. So when she was first trying to kind of contact the family, they were a little apprehensive um, because of their past experiences. They were not necessarily open to opening themselves up to that again and like giving their perspective. Um, yeah. Is this the journalist in the movie that was made? Um, you know, I'm not for sure about that. Do you want to look that up and we can tell the... Yeah. That movie, The Immortal Life of Henry. Yeah. The one with Oprah on mm-hmm. Hulu. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's her. Okay, so she's in the... I haven't watched the movie, have you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I saw the movie. Okay. So is the movie about the reporter and the, her interactions with the family? Yeah, the movie... It's been a while since I've seen it, but it talks a lot about what you were saying, um, you know, about what the family went through, um, you know, different relationships they had with the press and with journalists and making their decisions regarding what they wanted to do once they found out about the cells. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, that's kind of the very, very short, you know, story of Henrietta Lacks, I guess, the summary. Um, And so I think you also had something you wanted to mention about that, right, Lexi? Yeah, so, you know, in doing my research about this, at the time, Johns Hopkins, unfortunately and so sadly, was one of the only hospitals in the Baltimore area that would treat black patients. And so Henrietta Lacks was treated in what they called a colored wing at the time, which is where she got her um, biopsies, her radiation, and all the other treatments she had at the time. Okay, wow. So there is really only one place for women of color to get treatment? Yeah, in the Baltimore area. Okay. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that kind of brings us into the fact that, unfortunately, Henrietta Lacks was not an anomaly in that way. Um, So that's going to bring us into our next segment, talking about oppression in the OBGYN world and um, things that we can talk about from that perspective. Yeah, sounds good, Lexi. Can you start us off with that? Absolutely. So we decided one of the best ways we could think to do this was to do it from the perspective of an actual expert in this field. So we are going to be using some quotes and perspectives from Deirdre Cooper Owens. She is a Charles and Linda Wilson professor in the history of medicine at the University of Nebraska. And she's also the author of the book Medical Bondage, Race, Gender, and the Origins of American Gynecology. She has been an absolute um, pillar in this field and in uncovering the history of many oppressed women throughout the years. So she focuses on the uh, conflicting roles that enslaved black women played in the growth of the field of OBGYN. And her work today is helping to inform modern physicians and nurses about the origins of medical racism. So modern gynecology advanced pretty quickly in the South and many of the doctors were slave owners themselves. And so a lot of the slaves were used to experiment on, to examine, and to try and cure or find treatments for various disorders. And a lot of what had happened at this time has turned into what we have today as racialized fictions. Um, and Deirdre Owens talks about this extensively in her book when she talks about um, you know, many misconceptions that black women are more hypersexual, or that black women don't experience pain, that they're immodest or stronger. 
um, than white women. And so, you know, a lot of her work is uncovering these fictions and talking about their origins and bringing them to fruition. And so this brings us to, you know, another concept about giving credit where credit is due. So John Marion Sims is known as the modern-day father of American gynecology for pioneering the repair of the vesicovaginal fistula in the 1840s. But, you know, the thing that we need to mention here is that a lot of his work was done on black bondswomen who lived and worked at the hospital. And so, you know, this kind of begs the question of should they be known as the mothers of American gynecology? And Summer, I know that you had listened to a lecture that she had given. Yeah, so I watched a lecture on YouTube that this author, um, the author of Medical Bondage, Deirdre Owens, um, gave at Carnegie Mellon. And she was just kind of talking about her book and also talking about some salient points from her book that she wanted people to know. Um, And so if anybody also wants to watch this, I'd recommend it. She was a great speaker and it was just a really interesting video to watch. Um, She kind of goes over her role as a historian and what it means to her and how she really thinks it's important to look at things in the context of the time and get like a full scope of you know what is going on um and so some of the things i kind of gleaned from her lecture is that sims was operating on these um slaves and he was he was leasing them essentially so he these women were slaves they didn't necessarily give their consent to these procedures but he was operating on them um and he would operate on them like eight or nine times trying to um, perfect his technique and um one of the things that Owens brings up in her um, in her book, and I guess also probably her lecture, is that um, in Sims' biography, he mentions that had these women been able to recover without performing or receiving sexual acts, um, they probably would have healed better or his methods would have been more successful early on. Um, and so I think this... And what Owen says is that it alludes to the idea that, you know, these women probably didn't have autonomy over their own bodies. You know, they really were slaves who were being um, used in multiple ways. And I think that's very heart-wrenching to, you know, they've given birth so many times. They have these vesicovaginal fistulas. They are being operated on. um, And then they don't really have the opportunity to fully recover. I thought that was a very poignant moment. Um, and something worth mentioning. And then something else that she talked about that I thought was kind of interesting is that a lot of people hear that Sims did these procedures without anesthesia and that evokes kind of an emotional response in them. And it, it did for me as well. You know, thinking of somebody doing surgeries on somebody without anesthesia is like very, it gives you like a guttural, like cringe almost reaction. But something that Owens mentions is that it's important to note that anesthesia in general at this time was not commonly used during surgeries you know a lot of the doctors at the time were concerned about women bleeding out um and so they kind of wanted them somewhat awake to like kind of assess their response and make sure that they are doing okay during a surgery and another perspective too is to think about a lot of the women at the time who were having those anesthesia-less surgeries usually would be having them for you know, one condition that they had to treat, one surgery or, you know, one emergency compared to these women who were getting, you know, eight, nine surgeries in a row without anesthesia or, you know, maybe procedures they didn't even need. That's true. That's true. It's um, definitely eight or nine surgeries is a lot to go through physically. I can't begin to imagine. So insane. Mm hmm. Um, Anyway, so that's interesting. That's definitely a book that I'm going to read more before I go to residency. Um, I'm going to put the book on my Christmas list because it was a little pricey, but um, (laughs) hopefully I get to read it soon. Um, Yeah, I have a lot of books like that and a couple of uh, documentaries on my to watch and to read list. Do you have any specific that you would recommend after all the research that we've done and that you did yesterday yeah so in you know just like kind of searching through these topics and stuff so I definitely want to read medical bandage or bondage but I also um one of the this author of medical bondage also mentions a couple other books um 
one of the ones I think she mentioned is called Killing the Black Body by Dorothy Roberts. Um, I've heard, and it has a lot of good reviews when you pull it up on um, Goodreads. So maybe another interesting one to learn from. I think um, it's kind of hard, you know, in medical school, we spend all this time focusing on the science of medicine, that it's, we don't always have time to explore all these avenues that we want to pursue, but luckily in fourth year, we have some extra time. So hopefully we get to do some more things and get to learn a little bit more about all of this. Yeah, I think it's always good to learn a bit more about the history of medicine and where things came from just to get a different perspective. Yeah, absolutely. So we talked a little bit about, you know, the treatment of slaves throughout um, history and how that's kind of enhanced GYN history. Um, but there's also been other times throughout history that there's been oppression. Lexi, I think you learned a lot about kind of the Holocaust and some of those things. Um, do you want to kind of talk about that? Yeah. So the history of OBGYN in the Holocaust is both, you know, I think heroic and tragic. Um, you know, growing up, I had always heard different family members talk about their, you know, chilling experiences in the Holocaust. And I remember hearing about women that were pregnant and how it was, um, you know, really, really scary thing to be pregnant in the Holocaust and to have to hide it. And so today I'm going to tell the story of an absolute Holocaust hero. Her name was Gisela Pearl, and she was known as the Angel of Auschwitz. So Dr. Pearl was um, forced to work for Joseph Mengele at Auschwitz. And for those that are unaware, he was the um, doctor of Auschwitz, which was the biggest uh, Jewish concentration camp that performed uh, really gruesome experiments on Jews. And so let's start from the beginning and tell her story. So in 1907, Dr. Pearl is 16 years old. She graduated actually first in her secondary school class, and she was the first woman and the only Jew at the time to have done so. So throwing in a little pearl, for lack of better words, of Jewish history in there as well. So she went on with her training and started working as a gynecologist in Hungary when the Germans invaded in 1944. Um, That same year, the Nazis sent Pearl, her husband, her son, parents, extended family, um, and friends to Auschwitz. She and her husband also had a young daughter at the time who was hidden with a non-Jewish family right before Pearl's family was taken to the Hungarian ghetto. So the daughter was not with the family throughout their experience in Auschwitz, and they were uh, separated from each other. So when she got to Auschwitz, the Nazis quickly separated Pearl from the rest of her family. Her son later would die in a gas chamber. Her husband was beaten to death shortly before the camp was liberated. She herself was spared um, because Dr. Mengele had found out that she was a physician uh, before coming to Auschwitz. Um, He himself is known for his terrible experiments on Jews and more specifically on twins. So when he found out that Dr. Pearl was a gynecologist, he thought that he could use her to aid in his experimentation on Jews and to, you know, get access to different types of treatments and... um, a different connection with the women that were there. Um, so Mengele essentially told Pearl that he wanted to send all the pregnant moms that were in Auschwitz to a different camp with the promise that they would get better care in this other camp. But Pearl, being very realistic for the time, knew that that was, you know, a bold-faced lie and that was not true. And that the women that would be sent there ultimately would be experimented on and killed. And that is exactly what happened with all of the pregnant women that went to this other camp is that they were experimented on and ultimately their baby and the mother died. And so now Dr. Pearl was facing a double-edged sword. If she sent the pregnant moms and told Dr. Mengel about um, any women that were pregnant, they would be sent to this concentration camp and then both mom and baby would eventually die. But if she hid pregnancies in the barracks and somebody were to find out if the baby was born, um, you know, everyone in the barracks would be killed for hiding such a secret. Wow. That's just wild to me. Like the the caliber of that. Yeah. I can't imagine coming into Auschwitz being pregnant and knowing that 
you know, there is not a light at the end of the tunnel. It's either you and your baby or your baby. Mm-hmm. And so Dr. Pearl ultimately decided that she would try to save the mother's lives and started performing rudimentary abortions in the barracks. She tells the tragic story of a baby that was delivered in the barracks. So this was a mom that um, didn't want to have an abortion in the barracks and she tried to conceal the pregnancy to the Nazis that surrounded her. So Dr. Pearl helped her by admitting her to one of the, um, you know, for lack of better terms, the hospital areas of the barracks with pneumonia which was not a killable disease. And, you know, I say that because things like typhoid, you could be killed for having Wow! in the barracks. So she was sent with pneumonia. She actually ended up delivering um, a, a healthy baby in the barracks. And Dr. Pearl, quote, says, I could hide him no longer. I took the warm little body in my hands, kissed the smooth face, then strangled him and buried his body under a mountain of corpses waiting to be cremated. And I can't imagine how much, you know, heart that would shatter to have to do something like that. But, you know, she did this with the knowledge that if she didn't, if she didn't do what she did, you know, not only the baby would die, not only the mom would die, but everybody that was involved in, in that pregnancy, everybody that knew about it would die as well. Wow. That's chilling, but I don't know. I just have so many reactions to that and so she continued to do this throughout her time in Auschwitz and saved the lives of countless women that were faced with this terrible terrible dilemma and so Dr. Pearl was released from Auschwitz at the end of the war by which point her whole family was dead she herself tried to commit suicide shortly after her liberation and then in June of 1948 Pearl published her story called I was a doctor in Auschwitz which was adapted into an Emmy-winning miniseries in 2003 called Out of the Ashes. She then went on to work at New York Mount Sinai's hospital uh, at the suggestion of Eleanor Roosevelt, with whom she'd struck up a rapport. And she worked as a gynecologist for several years at Mount Sinai and delivered thousands of healthy babies. When giving this interview, she, um, she tells the excerpt that before each delivery at Mount Sinai, she would say the exact same prayer. God, you owe me a life, a living baby. She then was reunited with her daughter, who was hidden before the war, and the two moved to Israel, where she lived happily with her daughter until 1988, when she passed away. Wow, that's a wild story. So her the story she published, the I Was a Doctor in Auschwitz, um, is there, where can we read that? Is that a book, or is it like a short story? Um yeah, so this is a book that she wrote. It's a it's available on Amazon in paperback. Um, you know, I'm not sure if it's at Barnes and Noble or any of the more you know accessible stores, but mm-hmm. um, an amazing, incredible read. I'll have to add that one to my book list as well. I feel like though I've been, or at least like prior to medical school, I read a ton of books on the Holocaust, historical, um, like historical fiction, but obviously based on true situations. And I feel like for a while, I kind of had to take a step away just because it was, it was just a lot. Uh, But I think maybe it's time to like start reading this again. And that would be, for me, a really interesting story. So I think I might add that one to the list. And then, so the mini series Out of the Ashes, um, can we watch that? Where could we stream it? That's a good question. I actually, I haven't seen this one yet. I want to watch this um, when I can. I'm looking at it now. Let's see. Out of the Ashes, uh, starring Christine Lottie, available on DVD. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Let me see. Maybe we'll revisit this at the end of the podcast. And we'll let them know. Maybe at the end of the podcast, we'll give them like a full list of some of the things we're adding to our documentary and book list. Yeah. It is crazy to think, though, that all of this wasn't even 80 years ago. Mm -hmm. Like this is not ancient history. I know. It's pretty wild. Um, So moving a little even more closer to the future, moving forward in history a little bit more. Our next topic is Roe vs. Wade. Um, I'm sure you're all very aware of Roe v. Wade in the news recently. So we just kind of wanted to take a step back um, and just look at historically what has happened with Roe and just kind of go over the timeline. 
Um, and another little disclaimer, this is purely historical from what we were able to find. It does not reflect our own personal opinions or the opinions of our school. Right, exactly. So this is just kind of, you know, how Roe came to be. So um, to first look back at Roe, I think we need to look back at Jane Roe. So Jane Roe was actually a fictional name, a pseudonym, if you will, for um, her real name is for Norma McCorvey. Um, so Norma McCorvey, um, you can actually learn a little bit more about her life if you watch the documentary, um, AKA Jane Rowe. Um, where can I watch that? So you can watch it on Hulu. I watched it last night and it was actually pretty interesting. But so to summarize her life, and this is really just coming from the documentary. So if you'd rather watch the documentary, just skip ahead a couple of minutes and go ahead and do that. But if you just kind of want to listen to my synopsis, um, here it goes. So basically, um, Norma McCorvey, she kind of had a really hard upbringing. Um, There was mention in the documentary of her being sexually assaulted for multiple years throughout her childhood. Um, She went on to marry... Um, what seems to be an abusive husband. She got married at 16, and at the time, her husband was 22. Um, She gave birth to her first child in that marriage, Um, and when she told her husband that she was pregnant, I believe she, he hit her. Um, And so they somehow parted ways, but she was also at the time suffering from alcoholism. Um, She then, her daughter from this marriage was, um, her Norma's mom took custody of the daughter and um, Norma kind of ended up in a bad place she was using drugs and alcohol she was living on the streets Um, she says she was raped and became pregnant with the baby that later went on to inspire Roe so at this time she's she's seeking medical attention trying to get an abortion she was ultimately referred to Sarah Weddington and Linda Coffey And these were feminist lawyers at the time who wanted to take on her case and, um, like, challenge um, and create a law. A feminist lawyer with the last name Coffee? I want to be her. Yeah. (laughs) Um, It's actually pretty interesting. Sarah Weddington, I believe, was, like, 26 years old at the time of all this. And, like, you know, we're 26. Can you imagine being 26 and bringing something up to the Supreme Court? I think that was really interesting. That is incredible. Something also interesting in the, if you watched, it was a different documentary I watched, but if you can see like um, news reports at the time and the headlines about Sarah Weddington say, blonde lawyer takes on blah, blah, blah. And I just thought that was interesting that the word to describe her was (laughs) her hair color. I don't, it, it speaks to clearly a different time. Um, hopefully. Um, but so I just, anyway, sidetrack, but she was referred to these lawyers who wanted to take on her case. And so at this time that all this is happening, um, uh, Norma, aka Jane Roe, she is very pro-choice at this time. And then, um, eventually Roe gets brought to the Supreme Court. Um, it becomes the law of the land. And, but then eventually Norma McCorvey, kind of flips she kind of joins this anti-choice or pro-life whatever you want to call it movement how did that happen so it didn't explicitly say in the documentary and that's definitely something that would be more interesting to look into but you just kind of see this shift and there's footage of her in the documentary being you know baptized in a pool that's documented and then she kind of takes on this evangelical outlook um there's mention of her burning an lgbtq flag and What's kind of interesting, too, is this whole time, like even in the beginning of the documentary, she mentions being attracted to women and then she's dating a woman for all these years. Um, but then once she kind of takes on this 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 flip in the stance or whatever, she says that she's no longer living with her partner, denies any sexual relationships and that she's, you know, living this more Christian lifestyle. Interesting. Yeah. So then... Fast forward multiple years to close to the year 2017, around when this documentary is being formed, she comes out and she makes this deathbed confession. She says that she didn't really believe any of the things she was saying for these pro-life movements. Wow. So she says um, that she didn't believe it. She was saying whatever they wanted to say. She just wanted to be paid. Um, And so I don't know. It just kind of that whole 
it was an interesting documentary and it's worth a watch um, to kind of see her life and kind of see I I got I got the vibe that she has been through a lot in her lifetime and has been somewhat taken advantage of is kind of the impression that I got Mm. um anyway so that's the kind of the backstory on Norma McCorvey if we want to talk about specifically Roe um so basically when it all started supreme court on january 22 1973 ruled 72 that unduly restrictive state regulation of abortion is unconstitutional in a majority opinion this was written by justice harry a blackman the court held that the state that the state of texas statutes criminalizing abortion in most instances violated a woman's constitutional right of privacy which found it implicit in the liberty guarantee of due process clause by the 14th Amendment. So that's kind of the legal gist of Roe that was established in 1973. However, so we're now in the year 2022. Between 1973 and 2022, there's been multiple challenges to Roe over the years. And especially like after the year 2010, there began to be like this kind of snowfall of um, states passing laws that are somewhat more restrictive in terms of abortions so kind of like a summary of the challenges to roe over the years have been um, planned parenthood of southern pennsylvania versus casey so that might kind of ring a bell in some of your minds that was in 1992. so for this one the supreme court established that restrictions on abortion are unconstitutional if they place an undue burden on a woman seeking an abortion before the fetus is viable so kind of that was that became the quote unquote undue burden, um, the keywords there. Um, and then in later 2007, you have Gonzalez versus Carhartt. And here the court upheld the federal partial birth abortion ban act in 2003. This prohibited a rarely used abortion procedure known as the intact dilation and evacuation. And then in 2016, Whole Woman's Health versus Hellerstedt, I don't know if I'm saying that right, the court invoked its decision in Casey to strike down two provisions of a Texas law requiring abortion clinics to meet the standard of ambulatory surgical centers and abortion doctors to have admitting privileges at a nearby hospital. So it kind of said this was an undue burden. Um, And then fast forward to Dobbs versus the Jackson Women's Health Organization. So this is kind of what um, instigated the eventual overturning of Roe versus Wade. So in March of 2018, Mississippi State Legister adopted the Gestational Age Act. This act prohibited almost all abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy, which was well before the point of viability which was asserted in Roe to be 24 weeks. Um, So Jackson Women's Health Organization, which is um, a center for women that also provided abortions, um, only, and they are the only licensed abortion clinic in Mississippi, they filed a suit in federal district court challenging this constitutionality. This was eventually brought brought to the Supreme Court. um, And... That's where we get to May of 2022 when Justice Alito's opinion is leaked in the press. Um, So and so this is leaked and basically it shares with the public that it's likely that Roe is going to be overturned. They have the majority to overturn Roe versus Wade. So then ultimately, June 24th, 2022, um, the Supreme Court upheld the Mississippi's prohibition of pre-viability abortion and took the further step of overruling both Roe versus Wade and Casey. Um, so that's kind of where we are up to date. Um, le- looking more into all of this in the past couple of months, just because, you know, it is such big news. I have kind of realized that I wanted to gain a better understanding of how all this works. You know what I mean? So I think that's something that um, I would love to look into more. And I would imagine a lot of our our colleagues also would like to as well. What do you think, Lexi? Yeah, I would love to look a little bit more into this. I think it's always interesting to learn about the history of, you know, the laws that govern us, where they come from and how they work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And you could spend so much time going over um 
all of this and this was just a very very brief synopsis i did not do it justice and go into all of the nuances between each of these um this is a huge topic but i just think it's kind of interesting to lay out the timeline that you know in 1970 you have you know jane roe and then she eventually leads to this roe versus wade in 1973 and then 2022 it gets reversed and it's just it's kind of interesting that all of this happened in our you know not our timeline necessarily because we you know we're in our 20s but like my grandma you know what i mean she's 83 right now so she was alive when roe went into effect and then also when it was overturned and so i think our parent this is only 1970 oh that's right. right yeah i guess it depends how old your parents are that's true mm-hmm. yeah so just kind of um something i kind of want to talk with my relatives about and just kind of gain their perspective on as well yeah mm-hmm. all right so i don't want to belabor a row too much i know it's been in the news a lot i just wanted to give a little bit of a backstory for people that may not have been already aware um and our next topic is a little bit lighter a little bit more i guess interesting if you i don't know about interesting i don't know why i'm so weird but let's move on to something more fun. Should we talk about the history of hysterectomies and C-sections? Yes, we should. Okay. Do you want me to start us off with the history? Yes, Lexi, please start us off with the history of the hysterectomy. History, hysterectomy, history. All right, I'm getting a little loopy. <laughs> let's start with the abdominal hysterectomy. Okay. So the first abdominal hysterectomy was performed by Charles Clay in Manchester, England in 1843. Uh, his patient that he did this hysterectomy on did die, as did the other two that he operated on in the following year. It wasn't until 1853 that Ellis Burnham from Lowell, Massachusetts, achieved the first successful abdominal hysterectomy again. And the diagnosis uh, for which he performed the hysterectomy was wrong, and the patient also died. I think that there have been a lot of medical innovations out of Lowell, Massachusetts, news to me lol (laughs) (laughs) anyway there's also a pretty extensive history about the vaginal hysterectomy which is gaining a lot more traction in today's world yeah absolutely so the history kind of predates back to the prevalence of uh, uterine prolapse inversion and polyps you know back in ancient times prolapse you know occurred a lot especially because these women were um multi-paris had tons and tons of babies so this was a very common occurrence so vaginal hysterectomy um dates back to ancient times for prolapse the first procedure that we know of that was documented was performed by serenus of ephesius 120 years um after the birth of jesus I guess 120 AD would be a better way to describe that. I don't know. I'm Jewish. (laughs) Anyway, the many reports on its use in the Middle Ages were nearly always um, to fix an inverted uterus or for prolapse, and these patients very rarely survived after this procedure. The early and the first hysterectomies, um, you know, were fraught by hemorrhage, peritonitis, exhaustion, sepsis, fever, and these early procedures were performed without anesthesia and had a mortality rate of about 70%, so very, very high. Uh, Thomas Keith from Scotland realized this danger and cauterized the cervical stump, which allowed it to fall internally, and this brought the mortality rate to about 8%. So hysterectomy then became safer once we started introducing anesthesia, antibiotics, antiseptic treatments, blood transfusions, and IV therapy. Then during the 1930s, there was another innovator in the field, Richardson, who introduced the total abdominal hysterectomy to avoid serosanguinous discharge from the cervical remnant. And at this point, the risk of cervical carcinoma developing into the stump. Other notable developments in this field. So we have the advent of the transverse incision introduced by no other than Johann Fannenstiel in the 1920s. Wow. Yeah. Is that why it's a Fannenstiel incision? That is, the Fannenstiel. Then moving a bit later, we have the first laparoscopic hysterectomy by Harry Reich in Kingston, Pennsylvania in 1988. 
Obviously, we have a lot of developments in hysterectomy since then, but since we're focusing on the history, I think we're gonna stop here and then move on to C-section. Let's do it, C-sections. So the oldest depictions date back to Mesopotamia. Um, Mesopotamia? Mesopotamia. Um, and so this, they didn't call them necessarily C-sections, but they was, were just surgical depictions of, you know, removing the baby from the woman's womb. Um, so it dates back to basically ancient times, um, beginning of civilization. Um, but the first written report of a mother and child actually surviving finally comes in in 1500 when Swiss pig gelder Jacob Neufer. What's saw, a pig gelder? I, you know, honestly, I don't know. You keep telling the story. I'm going to look up for our audience. You look up what a pig gelder is. Um, I believe it has something to do with, like, medical manipulation of pigs because he has a lot of expertise in, like, suturing. Um, But so he sought permission from the authorities to operate on his wife after several days of her being in fruitless labor. Um, So he sewed up his wife in the same manner he used with animals. And the following year, she supposedly gave birth to twins, um, and this time without surgery. So she was a V-back with twins. Wow. I know. Um, anyway, so then there's also you, the cesarean section. Like, where did this name come from? Um, so there are some theories on the origin of the name. So cesarean gets its name potentially from Julius Caesar. There is a woodcut from 1506 portraying the birth of Caesar by C-section. Um, he's, so he's basically being portrayed as a baby being removed from a dead woman. Um, but there's question as to if this is actually true because other accounts say that Caesar's mom was alive when he invaded Britain. Um, so kind of interesting. And then other people say that the name Caesarean comes from the Latin word, um, I might mispronounce this, but it's C-A-E-D-A-R-E, cock. Siadre? I don't know. How, to, how would you say that, Lexi? I'm not really fluent in Latin. I am not either. Yet. But that, that, but this Latin word means to cut. I am fluent in pig gelding, though. It apparently is one that castrates cows. But it's pigs. <laughs> <laughs> Do they castrate pigs or cows? I meant pigs. Okay, so this man who was proficient castrating his pigs was then able to do a C-section on his wife. Yeah, it says, a gelder is one who gelds or spays, sows. For example, extirpates extirpates the ovaries of a sow. Oh. So it seems like like modern-day neutering. Okay. Or I mean ancient-day neutering. I don't know why when you said castrating, I was picturing like a male pig. I think that's what it is. I think it's male or female. But like if it has could, ovaries, it has to be a female. Well, yeah, the one with ovaries. Okay. But you could okay. do it on either one. Okay, that's fair. I guess I was a little concerned as to where he was getting his knowledge of the female anatomy before entering oh. his wife. But so, I would like to say it's probably a good thing that we have the differentiation between medicine or medical school and veterinary school at this point um, in civilization. What do you think, Lexi? I would say that is a really good development. I agree. Um, anyway, I think cows have like multiple stomachs. Yeah, they have four. Wow. Anyway, moving on. Um, <laughs> do you like my cow noises? Anywho, we are going to move on to our next section. I believe this concludes our discussion. About- I think so too. I think Summer's milking the jokes a bit too much. Oh, all right. We'll see you guys back in our next session. Have a good day. Bye. Bye. <laughs>